When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here at Seabus Super, over the next three years, we're investing $1 billion into Seabus property. Building high-quality, sustainable developments around Australia. And creating healthy, long-term investments for members like me to enjoy in retirement. Seabus, for all of us. To consider if Seabus is right for you, go to seabussuper.com.au for a PDS. I had to go about it This is the final word. Cricket podcast with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. Uh, a week in which cricket ultimately was the winner, as it has been in so many weeks, uh, aside from the weeks in which it has lost. On the show today, uh, an interview with Ireland and Middlesex legend Tim Murta coming up, given that the county championship is about to get going in the UK once again. Uh, the Indian Premier League is also going to start in a few days' time, so there's a lot going on with that, including with us here and on the YouTube channel. We'll be doing some bits and pieces around it, one of which will be some regular catch-ups with Glenn Maxwell playing for the Royal Challengers Bangalore, who is looking for something to do from his hotel room and has agreed to be our India correspondent, given that Adam and I can't be over there. Glenn will be over there and will be chatting to us throughout the tournament, which is great news. It certainly is. Hi, Jeff. It's wonderful that Maxie's agreed to uh, yeah, essentially be our final word IPL correspondent. He'll check in for about... 10 or 15 minutes each week for our YouTube channel and we'll pop them on the podcast feed as well. We probably won't be talking to him about like the game he played last night, probably more about, you know, the the environment, the bubble, what's going on behind the scenes and generally Mm -hmm. speaking, keeping him company uh, through what will probably be uh, many long nights in the hotel given they're bubbled uh, this year again for obvious COVID reasons. So, but yeah, the YouTube channel's been going great guns. I think we're up to 1.2 million watches now thanks to um, the Harsha Bogle interview, which... If you're a long-term listener to The Final Word, you would know well, having listened to it on the feed. But many, many people have watched it on YouTube this week. And if you're one of those, hello to you. If you're new to the podcast, that's fantastic. And yeah, in addition to the maxi spots, we will do other IPL updates. We haven't quite clarified what they'll be as yet, but as Jeff said the other day, it'll be a bit of everything. Some match stuff, some sort of rap stuff at the end of weeks, maybe some watch-alongs that all the cool kids are doing those at the moment. So we might as well try and jump on their coattails and we'll see how it goes. But it's exciting. It'll be a medley. It'll be like the Grease Mega Mix medley, you know, in which <laughs> you get a little bit of Grease Lightning, a little bit of Summer Lovin', you know, a little bit of, uh, I can't remember any other songs from Grease. What's the one about Beauty School Dropout? Well, uh, well, uh, well, uh, <laughs> um, Oh, yes, the song about Amanda Wellington, uh, one of my faves. Now, the other big news out of India, um, not related to the IPL directly, but indirectly, is that Sachin Ramesh Tendulkar has, is, is down with the bug. So we're always talking about happy birthday, Sachin, on this show, but we need to say get well, Sachin, instead, because he's, he's not well. He's been hospitalised as a precaution, we're being told, not too badly off at this point, but um, a sad moment when someone who 
in your memory is so full of uh, joy and life, you find out that they're sick. Yeah, I think they said with an abundance of caution uh, that they've sent him to hospital after last week he said that he had COVID symptoms and then he actually went to hospital on the 10th anniversary of India winning the Men's 50 Over World Cup in 2011 so it was such a celebration of all those clips going around and of course those famous scenes at the Wanka Day Stadium of Sachin being chaired around on a lap of honour but um, yeah, currently unwell. We haven't heard any updates about his health but presumably you know, no news is simply that he's recuperating and He'll be back on his feet soon, so uh, yeah, get well, Sachin, and, and I suppose more happy birthday, Sachin, uh, in the weeks to come when he gets back hold of that Twitter account. Yes, well, you know, as long as he's convalescing, he should be able to be busy on the phone and busy in the yes. spreadsheet keeping track of those birthdays around the world. Uh, Tim Murta is uh, a, a player who has played an awful lot of cricket. He's got one more season on his contract. He's playing it now. He's currently 39. He's uh, even thinking about getting another contract after that, a champion cricketer champion bowler one of those proper seam bowlers move it around so uh, we've uh, spoiler alert we've already spoken to him we know what he's going to say but uh, that hasn't happened that'll <laughs> that'll happen a little bit later in the show um, but it's a, a chat we've been wanting to have for a while Adam yeah, it worked out really nicely in the end. Uh, I'm going to be involved with Middlesex again this year, hosting their live stream. And I'm thinking, well, what better way to kind of get in the groove of, of the county cricket year? Of course, it's April now. Mm-hmm. I've had the Easter weekend, so we're ready to roll. Then speak to a guy who's been playing for over 20 years. So he's kind of seen it all. And, and now, of course, uh, given that unexpected twist late in his career, got to play a lot of international cricket for Ireland. And we go through that. It's a great story. And He's a, he's a fantastic man, so I'm glad we were able to add him to the, the list of people who've been on the final word over the years. And, uh, yeah, we'll have, a I suppose, a strong interest in, in how he goes in season 2021 as, uh, as Middlesex, uh, yeah, they, they didn't do that well in four-day cricket last year in the Bob Willis Trophy, but they've done well in the off-season, got some good recruits, so it should be a fun campaign. Middlesex, also the only county to share a name with a Jeffrey Eugenides novel, so that's a reason to follow them if, if the others don't get you in. <laughs> uh, Australia's women, a world record, 22 in a row in New Zealand. Uh, on our way to that conversational topic, we should mention that the New Zealand-Australia travel bubble is coming. And New Zealanders have been able to yes. come into Australia without quarantine for a little while. And now it's going to go both ways. Uh, those of us in the country that I'm in right now will be able to cross the Tasman, soar like angels and land softly on the far side, on the green, green grass of Aotearoa and, um, and, 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 and just walk on out. Just walk out of the airport. Don't have to stay in a room for two weeks. Don't have to learn to hate your relatives. Don't have to be delivered three very terrifying meals a day. Just just stroll out into the um, sunlight or the rain as it happens to be, depending on the mood of the country on the day. Yeah, as two as two veterans of hotel quarantine, uh, yeah, it's not something that I would recommend. Um, so the fact that you can go to New Zealand and, and not have to go through that experience is certainly a good thing. And uh, Andrew McGlashan, Nasha, our, our colleague from Crick Info, made a really good point on Twitter when this was announced by the government today. Given the Australian men's team aren't playing a test match until probably December, when the first Ashes test is likely to be mm-hmm. against England at the Gabba. Why not have New Zealand over for some top-end test matches? They've been played before. They've been scheduled and cancelled many times against countries that Cricket Australia don't view as a an asset or uh, as, a, as a productive partner financially. But perhaps a little bit different with New Zealand, uh, especially with the time zone, how mm-hmm. it might tie in over there, television and all the rest of it. So... 
Yeah, that, that's a really good idea if they do want to squeeze in some some test cricket, maybe a couple of tests up there in July or August. I know they've got white ball commitments in the Caribbean and potentially Bangladesh as they build towards the Australian summer. But there is a window, so let's see how much they want it. And, and good that Nash has um, got that ball rolling today. That tweet did pretty well. And if you, if you could eliminate the um, you, you know the, the the two weeks, that's obviously such an imposition in terms of cost and in terms of you know convincing the visiting yeah, team absolutely. that they actually want to do it. Uh, if you can take that out of the way it does make it a much easier prospect to get New Zealand touring I've got a a second suggestion to add to Nash's why not get the New Zealand women's okay. team over for a couple of test matches? Wouldn't that be crazy? Hell yeah. Imagine, imagine. Yeah. Now, I know this is out there. I know this is wild. <laughs> but imagine women were also allowed to play the same sport that men are allowed to play. I know this is crazy. I know the science is in that, you know, that their, their knees will fall out or um, their wandering uteruses will strangle them. But... We've got to give them a shot sometime. We've got to give them a chance to see if they can get through a test match alive, which apparently uh, they can't be trusted to do. I know you had a couple of days at a music festival this weekend, Jeff, and might have missed the news, but Afghanistan's women have been permitted to play test cricket uh, via the ICC this week, despite the fact that they don't have a women's team. Right. So it was a, this came through. And look, there's, there's, no, um, there's no disputing the merit in enabling all women's teams uh, to be able to play mm-hmm. test cricket if they're full members. That makes a lot of sense. But yes, somewhat of a quirk uh, uh, that Afghanistan's women don't as yet play uh, international cricket. Hopefully they will into the future. One other thing I on logistics, I suppose, is that it's not a great thing that the vaccine rollout in Australia is going so slowly, Jeff, because the implications could be that we might have a summer in 2021-22 that's not too dissimilar from the one we've just completed. As far as teams getting into the country, hotel quarantine, we really thought this would be a one-summer-only problem. But if, I mean, you're probably following this a lot lot more closely than I am, but it doesn't feel like great news coming out of Canberra on this front in the last couple of days. Well, it hasn't really been any news. Um, It's it's turned into let's let's say sentences that have a lot of words in them that don't actually form any meaning when put together. You know, we will be re-examining our priorities to find the best foot forward routinely as as we go along that kind of thing so we've got no idea basically there's been a lot of setting of targets and a lot of not meeting of targets um but there are also a lot of places where they need vaccines a lot more badly than we do here so complaining about it seems a little bit inappropriate at the same time so i guess i guess it's a wait and see thing you know hopefully it's a slow start and and Mm -hmm. you know picks up steam comes home with a wet sail um all the all the rest of it but uh yeah we we can we can be hopeful you mentioned the music festival too i've got um i've got a little music festival story for you which will come up uh, remind me when we do nerd pledge i'll let you know looking forward to it jeff you said we're going to go across the tasman mm. to a world record uh, the australian women uh, racking up their 22nd one day win in a row mm-hmm. against new zealand in their first match at mount monganui yep. they won by six wickets with 69 balls to spare yep. nice uh, they bowled out new zealand for 2-1-2 they got there so easily thanks to ash gardner making an unbeaten 53 sealing it with a six over deep mid wicket elise perry 56 elisa healy 65 off the top after megan shoot took four for 32 bowled an absolute Absolute worldly to uh, start her day to skittle Haley Jensen, I think it was a massive looping, hooping in swinger mm-hmm. um, to take out her leg stump. But it was the classic Australian squeeze under Meg Lanning. Jeff, they do it so well when they bowl first. It was a fitting way to break that world record. And as you wrote in the Guardian, a very different kind of record. The last one day they lost was in 2017 at that World Cup. I mean. 
when Australia's men did it, 21 in a row, that was in 2003 across about four months, but a lot different when it's across four years. I was thinking of it in terms of, you know, the the yellow, the world record line at the at the swimming, at the Olympics, so like Kieran Perkins is a couple of strokes ahead of the line, <laughs> it's closing on him towards the wall. That's a really long time to chase the line. <laughs> like that's nearly four years chasing the yes. line. October 2017, you and I were there at Coffs Harbour with Heather Knight made 80-odd and, and England won by 20-something. And, That's right, you know, yeah, they had Alex yeah. Blackwell playing in that team, Nicole Bolt and Elise Villani, sort of players who, you know, although a couple of them are still playing state cricket, they really feel like players of a different era mm-hmm. when you think mm-hmm. about it. And then coming into 2018, the amount of time between two is it would be play three ODIs, wait six months, play three ODIs, wait six months. Um, they got a few together in, in 2019 and then COVID came along and so they had 12 months between engagements. 450 over cricket, given that they'd had a T20 focus leading up to that World Cup as well. So, yeah, three plus years to get those 22 matches together and to win them all. Um, and interesting that uh, the, the two most prominent players in Lanning and, and Perry weren't available for every game they they both missed games with injury and an absence so it was partly down on this new generation that we've seen coming through players like Annabelle Sutherland having a really prominent influence in the most recent series before this one players like Sophie Molyneux and Georgia Wareham and Taylor Valamick you know Darcy yep. Brown coming into the um, into calculations now in that squad and then the players who have been consistent the whole way through who've, who've been in all of those games Beth Mooney Elisa Healy Rachel Haynes Ash Gardner and Megan Shoot. you know Rachel Haynes who we thought her career was over around the time this streak started um, it looked like she'd never play again and 2017 she came back into this side yeah, you look across uh, those 22 games and Rachel Haynes has been perhaps uh, the most valuable player, certainly uh, with that in hand. Eight series, six countries and six opponents to rack up 22 wins. And yeah, New Zealand was so short of par with their 2-1-2 in the opening game. I was doing it on Saturday night, the live coverage for The Guardian. I mentioned it's kind of the Australian playbook. A, a, a tidy power play with the ball and you just never let them breathe, the opposition that is. And there was a big moment there. There was a, there was a turning point when Lauren Down was batting with Amelia Kerr and the latter was just mm. getting going. And we know Amelia Kerr has the skills to pay the bills when it comes to going big in the final 10. And it was she got given out stumped by the third umpire and I can't work out what the conclusive evidence was mm. to, to give her out. It was kind of one of those half a frame either way mm. when usually the benefit would then go with the batter, but not in this case. So once she fell, the rest followed shortly thereafter down, as I mentioned, top scoring with 90, her first international half century. No Frankie Mackay, Jeff. I mean, she was such a big part of the Mm. the T20 series, but got injured. Had an email from Tanya Winteringham during the week uh, telling us that Frankie's actually a librarian, which I didn't know. She's been doing some TV work recently for Spark and uh, did a good interview apparently on the Offspin podcast. Tanya uh, wanted me to let people know. But yes, I suppose not having Mackay there, who did so well in the T20, 20s Jensen who isn't really an opener having to do the job up the top and then copying that ball from Megan Shoot. it started outside the tram tracks I mean I don't know if you've seen the clip Jeff mm. outside the tram tracks on the off stump and hit leg stump yep. it swung so far it's a, a Megan Shoot special and yeah with the bat you combine Healy 
and Perry and Gardner all having good days at the same time, you're never going to lose. Those Megan shoot balls, I call them the UFOs. They're just like, I can just hear the music as they come <laughs> down. And then they just wobble, just levitate in. And you're like, it, it, surely it can't keep moving, but it does. It just keeps going. Uh, some, some fairly ridiculous stuff. The Perry numbers that I like to keep an eye on from the time that she first made a, a score after going up the order in 2013. Currently 54 innings since then 27 half centuries and 200 so 29 <laughs> times out of 54 she's gone past 50 average of 75.5 at the moment um, sits that elevation in one day cricket yeah and it's going to be interesting watching the next stage of her career we briefly touched on this last week but she's not really bowling i mean let's call mm. it for what it is she bowled three overs on sunday and they were by her standards relatively innocuous overs and that's okay because Nicola Carey's turned herself into a fantastic death bowler. Mm. Picked up three wickets, two of them at the end. Megan Shute does what Megan Shute does. It's as though Perry can almost just be a specialist bat. Doesn't mm. nearly really need to worry about her first discipline as a fast bowler because they've done such a great job over the years replenishing those stocks, which might be what extends Perry's career. If she doesn't need to worry about bowling too often, I mean, we, we talked about longevity in her last week. She's into her 15th year of international cricket at yeah. the moment or something ridiculous, and she's only 31, I think. If she doesn't have to worry about the wear and tear of pounding the crease, then that might, in the short term, be a bit annoying for her, but in the long term, uh, give her more years in the green and gold. Or just keeping her in the back pocket as a, a bowler you could go to if you wanted to, yeah, but dependable. you don't have to. I mean, mm. that's the kind of thing that an opposition would hate because they don't know if they need to prepare to face her or not. But, you know, particularly say you've got a, a relatively inexperienced player or an experienced team and you throw Perry on, then they're probably going to be a little bit overawed by that. So you can... There are mm. bowlers who in the later parts of their career can bowl on reputation more than on the actual force of the delivery they're sending down. I feel like Catherine Brunt's sometimes a bit like that. It's more about who's running in than what they're releasing. So they might be able to use that sort of... Um, you know, use Perry in that sort of way um, is, is a possibility. Yeah, and also, Jeff, there was some news that came out uh, this morning uh, in relation to England's women's team. Well, not really the team anymore because Sarah Taylor's retired from international cricket, but she's coming out of retirement for the 100. So that's, um, that's great news. Meg What's Lennon, that? Beth that's Mooney. Sarah Taylor's music. <laughs> <laughs> well, it'll be exciting to see her play again, uh, that's for sure. So there's, there's a number of Australians who are involved. Meg Lanning, Beth Mooney, Georgia Ware and Matthew Motts a coach in the comp too. Oh, well, that might be like the one Australia thing that discovers. Wales, that, that hundred team. It's, it's bloody ridiculous. Yes, yes. It, it might be the one thing that gets in the way of them playing test cricket, actually, uh, in that um, the tour you've proposed uh, is that they're all going to be in England mm. playing in the hundred, which, which will is be kind fast. of spanning July and August. Yeah, it'll be over in about four weeks. I'm not saying they couldn't do it, but yeah, I suppose that's where they'll all be and they might have to be in hotel quarantine on the way back if things don't get better. So it all kind of ties back to our... First conversation, but nevertheless, the Australian women have two more games in New Zealand before coming home. That's on Wednesday and then Saturday. It's on the same pitch throughout, so mm. it seemed around a lot on Sunday, but presumably by the time we get to Saturday, it'll be there for the spinners like Georgia Wareham. What a luxury, by the way, that Georgia Wareham uh, was the seventh bowler that Lanning turned to on Sunday. I mean, she's been integral to two World T20 wins as their primary leg spinner, and now they can just afford to bring her on as deep as they want. It says a lot about um, that all-round depth that, that Lanning has at her disposal so it might be 22 in a row but 
I suppose looking at it objectively, why can't it be 32 or 42? They're just ridiculous. Can't stop, won't stop. Let them yep. keep going. Georgia Wareham, I enjoy watching just because with Yassir Shah, they're the, they're the two bowlers who look most like rabbits when they come into bowl. They have to sort of do the, the boundy <laughs> hoppy thing and you can always see the, the ears flopping around as they fizz one down. So game two will have probably happened by the time this podcast episode goes out, I imagine. But if you want to know what happened in that, use the internet. You're already on it. The Mr. Sheffield Shield, the final round has happened and we know what's going to come next at last. The final has been set. New South Wales and Queensland will battle it out as they will battle out the 50 over final but in different places. The 50 over final in Sydney, the (laughs) Chef final in Brisbane. Kind of interesting that both sides qualified for the final having only won three matches out of eight. It was a big season for the draw. Those sort of early rounds in Adelaide, it was just everyone's going to make a shitload of runs. Um, lots of batting draws, a bit of rain late in the season. So WA and, and Tassie ended up with two wins each. Victoria won South Australia naught in the wins column. Um, WA had the chance to qualify by beating Tassie but ended up having that Result reversed, so Tasmania got a big win over them at the Wacker, um, and WA couldn't challenge. Remember when we were kids growing up that at the end of the VFL season, they would play an exhibition game Mm. in America? Usually it would be like a grand final playoff, as it were, and they might get a third or fourth team involved Oh yeah, um, just to spice things up a little bit. I think for the postseason this year, COVID pending, Queensland should play New South Wales in a tribute to Mr Sheffield at Flushing Queens with Fran Drescher involved in the exhibition game. A four-day game at Flushing Queens, mm-hmm. and maybe Brian R. Kane, our a resident New York umpire, can officiate in the match. I see it all coming together nicely. The short square boundaries here at Arthur Ashe Arena, <laughs> they can target <laughs> square of the wicket. <laughs> Look, I hope Mr. I, I Sheffield. Ah, so. <laughs> uh, well, straight straight to Mr. Sheffield's door. She was there to sell makeup. But father saw more. Father saw more. Um, so look, should we keep doing it? No, I reckon we, if pressed, we could both do the whole song. <laughs> if we can do the roof seal ad, she we, had style, she had flair, she was there. That's how. That's she how became she became the nanny. nanny. Yeah. Who Who would have thought that the girl we've described was just exactly what the doctor <laughs> exactly prescribed? Exactly what the doctor described. Um, <laughs> look, uh, I think we should move on. Um, we should look at the least important and interesting match first, which was Victoria and South Australia, basically. Victoria needed, they needed to make about 550 in the first 100 overs and then bowl out South Australia quickly. Uh, They didn't. South Australia made 333. Travis Head, another 76. Sam Kerber, 55 at number eight, which I quite enjoyed. John Holland took five. Um, And then the Vicks, 365. I was watching this innings actually because they were, what, eight down for a 180 or 200 odd. and, and, And Sam Harper racked up 100, made 106 not out, batting with the last couple. James Seymour made 60 on debut at the age of 29. I know that's a story that you've been interested in, the the James Seymour story. You want uh, to embrace him. You want him to throw his arms around you, as it were. Yeah, it's cool. Uh, Louis Cameron, who's his teammate from Essendon. Well, Louis did play with him at Essendon, a former Victorian bowler and, and colleague of ours um, from the press box these days. Uh, he detailed the fact that he's played everywhere, this bloke, James Seymour. He's played Sydney grade cricket, up at Darwin, Melbourne grade cricket, second 11, and just kept making 100 after 100 after 100. And it culminated in him making a, a century for, I think it's like the Premier Cricket 11. Mm-hmm. They had some sort of uh, representative game mid-season, and he got a text from Chris Rogers saying, 
just keep at it, don't give up, basically saying, look at my story, don't give up. And there he is, final game of the season, gets picked to debut for Victoria at age 29, makes a half century and presumably will be well placed to, to add to that next year in, in when he's 30. And as we say, with Chris Rogers as, as your coach, he's definitely the, the sort of guy you want in your corner as a guy with a three in front of your age. So uh, yeah, the Vicks made three, six, five. One other thing about the Sam Harper century, I'm not sure if you caught this. Again, it was Louis Cameron's work here on, on social media capturing this, that he led them off the field, but they run off the field now, the Victorians, like a football team. And I think one of the players replied as a Twitter, they run from the middle of the ground when they're fielding and jog over the line like a football team at halftime, which of course... <laughs> further establishes the idea that every Victorian cricketer or anyone that plays cricket yep. in Victoria really wants to play footy and wants to be sort of an AFL player rather than the cricketer. But I say well played to them and I want to see more of it next year. I want, to, I want them to embrace this even more and expand upon it and run out to the ground and do a lap of the square mm-hmm. or as a, as a huddle, as you would see yep. from a, a football team before a, doing their warm-ups. I'm sure there's more to this. Can we get a crepe paper banner <laughs> each? Could, could, could Buck Rogers oversee the making of a crepe paper banner? <laughs> All, the, Victorian, the Victorian cheer squad. We can get a Victorian Sheffield Shield cheer squad. Maybe Barb, who uh, who used to uh, run the Carlton cheer squad and was at every Victorian game. I don't know if she's still doing it these days, but I'm sure she'll be involved. Uh, <laughs> I think we're onto something here, Jeff. Maybe something for the off-season. Get, get some, get some um, quality rhymes on there. Here come the Vicks, kick them in the dicks, that sort of thing. You know, some, <laughs> some real, some real high-end stuff. So they only got three innings in. Handshake draw. South Australia made 329 for nine in the third innings. Henry Hunt made another 100. Sam Kerber made some more runs, 33 in the second innings. Uh, Jake Lehman, 62. John Holland, four for 90, so nearly got a 10-wicket match, um, the nine for the w- match. But the most important thing to come out of it was it was the last hurrah for Dr Sayers, Dr Sayers. Do-do-do-do, Dr Sayers, Dr Sayers. Oh, Dr Sayers. Chad with a double D has uh, decided to hang up the second D and just go around life as Chad with one D. Took one for 37 in his final game, um, but took a shitload of wickets for South Australia over the years. Took the most in the competition a couple of times, got on a bunch of test tours, never got the proper opportunity, only got the... The, the absolute dead dog test at the end of the Sandpaper Tour in South Africa in 2018 when the team was entirely cooked and they were only ever going to get flogged. But he still bowled really well in that first innings. Absolutely forgotten performance, the way he worked over AB de Villiers. Inside edge, outside edge, swinging in, swinging away and finally had him nicking off the inside edge through to new captain Tim Payne. Deserved more than that one test match, but wasn't quick enough. Nah, sorry, not when Darren Lehman was coach. Not quick enough, piss off. But yeah, Chad Sayers has had a, a career to be proud of. Yeah, any other era, he plays a lot of test cricket. 319 first-class wickets at 26 in 84 games for South Australia. We're having this conversation with Tim Murta later on, and there are a lot of parallels between the two of the them. The Irish Chad the... Sayers, he's often described as. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you watch the... Remember he took 50 wickets in a season, mm. or might have been near enough to 50, three or four years ago, and, and Cricket Australia popped out a, a compilation of his wickets, and off stump after off stump, mm. leg before after leg before. You know, he was so consistent. He's a bit of a throwback, really, to someone who was medium fast, landed it on the same spot all day, but mm-hmm. did a different thing with it. 
maybe if he had have been born in England, because he's a fraction quicker than Murta, maybe if he had have been born in England, he would have been given more opportunities. But yeah, a couple of test tours. Uh, had they had their time again, he might have been used, I, I suppose, in the 2015 Ashes series, he and Peter Siddle. He wasn't on that tour, but a kind of bowler like that would have served them well. But he does have that baggy green. He absolutely earned it. And as you say, Jeff um, bowled superbly in that first innings at Johannesburg, which shouldn't be forgotten. So a nice place to leave it uh, for Chad, uh, an outstanding career over 10 years. And another honour that he richly deserves is the Seabus Super Performer of the Week. Or well, maybe that should be for a decade or so of work, um, but it's it's a, a gong that has to go to Chad. Seabus invests directly back into the B and C industry, which stands for building and construction, but can also stand for bowling and Chad industry across Australia, creating jobs for members and supporting the industry. You can check out their work at cbussuper.com.au where you can get a PDS and find out if it's right for you and remember the past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance unless your Chad Sayers oh so consistent. Just a, a quick note for Henry Hunt. You mentioned his three centuries this season. I reckon he's a smoky for a national contract. Hmm. Um, there was a story that I think... I want to say Dan Bredig, possibly Andrew Wu, had last week foreshadowing there might be a couple of uh, left-field national contract selections. So I don't think Henry Hunt ended with a huge average, but the fact that he's been able to make it to three figures on three occasions, and that's in a team that's finished last for the fourth time in a row, South Australia have claimed the wooden spoon. So that reflects well upon him as well. So one to keep an eye on, Henry Hunt. I think he's 24 years of age. As far as making three tonnes goes, everyone made three tonnes this season. Cameron Green, three tonnes. Travis Head. Sean Marsh, Cameron Bancroft, <laughs> Moses Enriquez, Marna Slavoskakne, Josh Inglis, uh, Sam Whiteman, all made three tons. Three tons for everybody. Everybody gets three tons from Oprah. Um, so I, I'm, it may be a bit hard to stand out when everybody had such a good year with the bat on some relatively friendly surfaces. Uh, the draw between New South Wales and Queensland in the end meant that they both qualified New South Wales 381 batting first Jason Sanger a ton for him which was notable um, 103 just got past it Daniel Hughes 74 Brendan Doggett took four um, but Queensland responded really well they got a 50 odd run lead Marnus made a ton Kawaja 64 Jimmy Pearson who I've mentioned the, the keeper making a lot of runs consistently 59 uh, 59 for Bryce Street Nathan Lyon took six for and yeah they only got the third innings in as well really New South Wales 145 for five when they decided to shake hands on it Matthew Jilks or Gilks Jilks he's a soft G isn't he made 66 and swept some mm-hmm. four for 60 but they lost some time to rain in that match and I don't think either team was too bothered about ending up with a draw although that could have um got New South Wales in trouble if WA had won. Yeah, a bit to take from it still. So let's start with Labashane. He's now made 17 first-class hundreds, 13 of them in the last two years, which is a pretty remarkable strike rate mm. considering he played so much cricket for Queensland until that point. And that was the one glaring omission when he made his test debut back in 2018 and got that subsequent test in early 2019. It's like, well, where are the centuries that Justin Langer yep. is always talking about? And that's what that's how he's been able to take his career to the next level. It's consistently making it uh, to that marker. So well played him. Lion, uh, a six-wicket bag. Mitchell Stark, none for 82. A year, a season, a summer, he would just like to forget entirely. Obviously, it's been tinged with personal grief as well. And, you know, the Test Series playing out the way that it did and uh, now um, not finishing the Shield season well. I think we all know that feeling when, when you get to the end of something that's not played out the way you would have liked. You just want it to end, stop, 
do something else and pick it up in a few months' time. I hope that he's given the chance to do precisely that now. Nobody doubts Mitchell Stark's capacity to influence games of cricket for Australia and New South Wales and anyone else he plays for in between. I think he just needs a break. Uh, and, yeah, now we've reached April, which is pretty late for a season to be ending. There'll be a Shield final that he's involved in next week and he gets that one more opportunity and the one-day final as well, presumably. And then he can sort of put the put the feet up and, and just chill. I think that's the best mm. thing for him at this stage. Yep. Nathan Lyon led the comp for wickets this season, which is interesting. The the test spinner playing all of the Shield games. So 39 wickets for the season. A Twitter correspondent named Jay Rizzle brought this to our attention to say, mm. how long has it been since a player played every test match and every Shield game in the same season? Now, luckily, mm. Jay Rizzle tagged in the great statistician Sir Swamp thing, so we didn't have to look this up ourselves. It turns <laughs> out how long has it been? It's been zero days because Cameron Green also did that. But before that, whoever did that before this season, you've got to go back to 1975-76 when the Chapel brothers, uh, along with Ashley Mallett and Jeff Thompson and Rod Marsh, all achieved the same feat. So that's the, uh, that tells you the kind of weird, you know, alternate reality season that we were in, that there were no other demands on the Test players. They were able to be here playing every Shield game. Yeah, and in the same way that playing all of these games in the back half of the year and not being on a Test tour perhaps didn't help Mitchell Stark that much. It probably did help Nathan Lyon. Mm. He finished off with 39 wickets at 25 in the group stage. Of course, the Shield final ahead of him. Three Fifers, including the six to finish and a Fifer last week and one against Victoria at the SCG as well. So he's bowled himself back into some form, although, you know, his spinner's form is such a a fluid thing, but he wasn't in the wickets in the Test Summer, only Mm. taking... I think nine, nine of them in, yeah. in four matches. So he's done pretty nicely there, Nathan Lyon. Just to remind everyone that he's the, the best spinner in the country, which you need to do when you've got Mitchell Schwepson uh, bowling balls like he did to Daniel Hughes before the close of play on day three. I'm not sure if you saw the highlights, but it was, I mean, it was like nearly landing off the pitch and hit off stump to the left-hander from around the wicket. So he's got the natural angle, but this boy can seriously bowl Mitch Swepson and he's advanced his reputation through the course of the Shield season. And again, of course, they, they do play again in the finals, so he'll get that last opportunity. Schweppervescence. Uh, WA, well, they just had to win, but Tasmania came out and made 514 first up, so that was pretty much that done from the first innings. Webster, 135, not out, batting at number seven. Doran, 123. Matthew Wade, 90. He hasn't made 100 in this season. He's made a bunch of 50s. He's, I think he's made more 50s than anyone else in, in the comp this season, Matthew Wade. But he has not been able to finish off with uh, with three figures. I reckon he's got five half centuries, is it? No, him and, him and Sean Abbott both got five half centuries. Sean Abbott finished right. just outside the top 10 for most runs, made over 500 runs, took 17 wickets, I think, at the same time. But um, Jack Bird... 64. Well, he made runs last time. He made runs this time. Hope you're watching Rod Marsh. Hope you're watching Jackson Bird <laughs> making runs with the bat. Maybe now he can get back into the test team because uh, because he's he's doing what you need to do down at number 10 or, or thereabouts. So it, it didn't work out for WA. They lost uh, midnight in Joel Paris with an injury. He made 100 and took five for last match, but... Uh, Two for 18 from 10 overs and then had to go off with a, a groin strain, which if you were Midnight and Joel Paris, I suppose you might um, have a, a fair bit of wear and tear on that region. And then WA weren't really anywhere near it, made 219. Bancroft made another 50, which is interesting, a big season for him. Jared Freeman, this new offie they've brought through, four for 
172. Mm. Tassie whacked a few around and, and declared to set them 480 with most, well, all of day four and a, a little tiny bit of night three. Um, and then WA bowled out on the last day for 304. A, a last little hurrah for Sean Marsh, a, a last half century for the season. Green made 40. There was sort of a glimmer in that middle that they might be able to chase that 480, a ridiculous kind of chase, but um, nowhere near it in the end. Joel Paris got to smash some runs around with his hampered groin. I don't know if he smashed the runs with his groin. Um, if he did, it would have been truly impressive, but he uh, he was able to stand at the crease and hit the ball, even though he couldn't bowl. But, yeah, disappointing end for WA that they had a chance. It was, as they say, their destiny was in their own hands, but they were not able to keep it in their hands. I don't know how that metaphor finishes. <laughs> so out of this, uh, I mentioned players who are next rung down who might find themselves with a national contract. Well, Jake Doran finished with the eighth most runs in the comp. He's probably 21 now, maybe 22. He was the, I think he was the Australian under-19s captain when he was like 17. Mm -hmm. And he was on the pathway, New South Wales, then down to Tasmania to get a chance to wicket keep. Now he's playing as a specialist bat Mm because Tim Payne's been able to play uh, the whole way through the Shield season. But even without the gloves, he's made in excess of 600 runs, a couple of centuries in the last two rounds. So a good time to be posting numbers, as they say. And gutted for Joel Paris, midnight in. You know, last week, that maiden first-class 100, Pfeiffer after being not completely off the radar, but, you know, after that international debut against India back in 2016, we haven't really heard him in contention. But for a couple of years leading up to that, he was who they were all talking about over in WA. Quick. Swings it, left arm, good combination. Uh, and then to yeah, pick up that groin strain after really going through Tassie early. I think they were sort of like three for not many. And then they go on to make 514 and suck the oxygen out of the game. So, yeah, it did in some respects hinge on his injury. But that's the end of WA's campaign. In terms of topping the pops with runs, it was Cameron Green, unsurprisingly, given he made a 250, I think it was, along the way at the Gabba, mm-hmm. uh, made 922 runs at 76. Travis Head, 893 at 69. Nice. Sean Marsh, 734 at 54. Got to go to India. Sean Marsh has got to go to India. You can't be racking up (laughs) 734 runs in a season and not going to India. He's got to go. They're good numbers. Marcus Harris, Cameron Bancroft, Mavis Henriquez, uh, Marnus Labashane, Henry Hunt, Jake Doran, and Josh Inglis rounding out the top 10. We already talked about Nathan Lyon having the most wickets with 39. Jackson Bird, 35 at 22. Very tidy indeed. Scott Boland, Mitchell Schwepson, John Holland, Cameron Gannon, Matthew mm-hmm. Kelly, Trent Copeland, Pete Siddle, and Harry Conway rounding out the top 10. So it's been a really good Shield season. Just wanted to kind of reflect on this before we move away from it. The block at the start worked. And I actually think the block at the end's worked. I reckon, I mean, I know that it's been this way before. And yes, they've they've benefited from having uh, more international players at their disposal than normal. But Mm -hmm. you know how they've said before that sometimes uh, the bits and pieces from COVID that we've taken and might do more of post-COVID, keeping shield cricket away from international cricket, not having rounds clashing, I think has served them pretty well. So something to look for next year when they're doing the scheduling. And one last little uh, nugget before we move off the shield is that Sean Abbott, he wasn't in the top 10 for wickets or runs, Mm. but he took wickets and he made in excess of 500 runs as a legitimate all-rounder for New South Wales this year. And he's gone and gone and bloody won himself a county contract. He's off to Surrey. 
So Sean Abbott, uh, it's been announced, will play three championship games and the whole T20 blast for Surrey uh, when he arrives. I suppose that must be mm. in July or June or July. So that's yet further recognition for a guy who's right on the cusp of a test debut at the moment, I would say. Very nice. Uh, good luck to him. A couple of observations I would make from the Shield runs. Jackson Bird, 196 runs at 18, uh, made 250s in the season. Not bad. <laughs> um, Sam Whiteman. Don't get talked about a lot. Can keep wicket. 555 runs for the season, 300s. You know, that doesn't come up in the conversations much. But but doing the business over there, so just, just footnoting that, just flagging that. Uh, I like the fact that there are a dozen odd players with 500-plus runs for the season from their seven or eight matches. Will Pekoski, 495 runs from two matches. <laughs> <laughs> Had he got to play the rest of the season, um, it could have been on for an absolute monster. And uh, lastly, Cameron Bancroft, 678 runs at 48 with 300s. Another little mm. footnote, just interesting, just interesting. Is he, uh, is, he playing, is he playing a little bit of Whitney Houston? Is he playing, changing the words around? Is he, I'm coming back. I want the world to know. Got to let it show. I'm coming. Maybe he is. Maybe he is. With all these, I mean, it, it is. It's a. We're, I'm not for a heartbeat saying that we're we're back to the 90s where there are a lot of batsmen who are pressing for Tesla. It's not like that. But this is a more impressive depth chart than mm. perhaps we've seen in recent Shield Shield seasons across the board. And I yes, think it was an easier season somewhat. for batting. Like there, there were some. Yeah, there have if, been if tough played by the South Australia roads. Um, but but also the, yeah. in quite a lot of the last few seasons there have been very bowler friendly tracks. There've been you know very low scores. It, Hobart sometimes and Brisbane sometimes, you know, quite a bit of grass on the pitch. This idea of thinking about England using the Dukes balls, all the rest of it, which has been profitable for bowlers the last few seasons. Yeah, yeah. And the one day cup final, Jeff, as you mentioned, that's going to be almost certainly New South Wales and Queensland. I think there is a scenario where Queensland could be vulnerable if Victoria and or WA win big with bonus points in their last game. So the the final two matches of Vic SA and WA Taz there on Thursday. So there is a a mathematical scenario where Queensland can be dislodged, but uh, in all probability it'll be the Blues and the Maroons in the State of Origin (laughs) final in both the four-day and the one-day cricket later in the month. At first drop, (laughs) he's the only rugby league player whose name I know. So I used him up first. After this, uh, Cameron Smith. Cameron Smith retired recently. Who'd he play for? Victoria? Uh, I don't know. Look, let's... I don't want you to let's, know. Let's, if, you knew, I'd, if you knew, I'd be pissed off. Uh, 50 over cricket, speaking of, uh, rather enjoyed watching and catching up with a few fairly ridiculous bits and pieces from Pakistan's visit to South Africa. The first of these... It involves something we've been talking about a bit on the show in recent weeks. So, South Africa... Made 273, Pakistan chasing. Uh, we've been talking about the waist-high no ball a bit. There's one in the 49th over in which Lungi Ngidi bowls Shadab Khan with a full toss, and they check it. The third umpires check it and decide that it's a no ball. And so that yields for Pakistan four runs off the free hit, and then there's an extra ball bowled in the over for the no ball, and that goes for three. So they get seven runs out of it. Matt May wrote to us about that, saying if that high full toss that wasn't originally called by the umpire, if that trickles through for the keeper, it's a dot ball, no free hit, one less ball in the over, and Pakistan got the winning runs off the last ball of the match. So it's lucky that Shadab Khan was bowled by that delivery. Exactly <laughs> the exactly the, the point we've been talking about, where there are times in which it is better to get out to a ball that 
you can subsequently get overturned uh, because you will profit more than if you, for instance, hit that ball for six, you'd end up with one fewer run than what you got by getting out to it and thus won the game. He's spot on. I went and had a look at it. There's no way that would have been checked, that no ball, that had it just trickled through to the keeper, as, as Matt brought to our attention. So, and in the end, I only needed three from the final over. Pelicuayo was bowling that. And it took until the last ball, so they were hard held. But they got there by... by uh, uh, they won by three wickets, Pakistan, there. But, yes, that, that moment that's worth drawing attention to. And there were plenty of those in the second one day, Jeff, Ooh, which was yeah. a, a thriller, a high-scoring thriller. South Africa make... 341 for five, Bavuma, the captain, 92, Dukok, 80, Rassi, Van der Dusen, 60 from 37, after making his first international century uh, in the first one day, mm-hmm. I should say, after passing 50, a shitload of times, finally made it to three figures, and Miller, 50 not out from 27 at the end. And then Fakazaman, Jeff, a player we've followed very closely through his international career so far, he went bananas. 193 from 155 balls, 10 sixes, 59.6% of the runs. So not quite in Bannerman contention, but near enough to it, which is extraordinary when chasing in a one-day international. So they fall 17 runs short, having needed 31 from the final over. Mm-hmm. But the way that Fakazaman was dismissed after... Everything that happened, well, I mean, it's ended up becoming a big focus of uh, the the law 41.5 around fake fielding. I might get you to explain that, Jeff, because it gets a bit complicated. Yes. Okay. So there is uh, law 41.5 says that a fielder may not uh, attempt to deceive or distract the batsman with gesture or word or movement. So if you pretend to field a ball when it's gone past you, for instance... Uh, you're supposed to concede five penalty runs. And in this case, you've got Fakha Zaman coming back for a second run towards the keeper, Quentin de Kock, who starts pointing down to the bowler's end and shouting to the bowler, although he knows the ball's coming to his end. And so Fakha Zaman turns around to see if his partner's going to be run out and slows up and thus gets run out at his own end, not knowing where the ball is. Mm, there was a lot of to-do about this, whether this was... Um, terribly out of the spirit of the game, whether it was legal or all the rest of it. My conclusion on it is that it, it's, it's definitely shithousery of, 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 the, of the highest <laughs> order because there is no doubt that or the only thing DeCock was doing was trying to fool the batsman, which means that under the laws of the game, it was definitely in contravention of that law. There were people arguing that that wasn't the case, but the, the way the law is written, there's no doubt in my mind, and I cannot understand why the umpires didn't enforce that, which means that that should have been five penalty Mm. runs and the ball should have been called dead and they would have got the two runs that they'd run. So they needed, at that point, they needed 31 off the last over and had that, uh, had that law been put into place, they would then have needed 24 from six balls, which the way Fakar Zaman was going would have been possible. The flip side to that is that I think that law is completely ridiculous and shouldn't exist. I don't know why it was brought in. There was never a problem that it needed to address. There was no spate of fake fielding incidents that needed to be diffused. There was nothing it was responding to. It's an absolutely absurd law because why shouldn't the fielding side do whatever they want? Um, the, the batsman should be running between the wickets. That's His job is to get back for the second run, not to be looking at, at his partner and seeing what's happening at the other end. So I, you know, it was in contravention of the law, but the law shouldn't exist. Yeah, I think I can sign up to that perspective. I mean, yes, Fakir Zaman shouldn't be taking cues from Quinton de Kock, but it's pretty clear if you go through it. Deliberate distraction, deception, 
or obstruction of a batsman. Well, it, I mean, it, it does. It was both distraction and deception. He, he was shouting deception. while um, in the batter's eye line, while gesturing and pointing. Yeah. There is no I, – I, that, that is a massive umpiring mistake, according to the laws the way they're Yeah, I – I agree. So um, it'll it'll doubtless. Um, uh, well, our old mate, our old mate Fraser Stewart from the MCC, uh, will have uh, something else to look at the next time they are <laughs> they come together to meet next year and look at all the various examples, and we'll see whether fake fielding lasts the tests of time. But yes, they've got one more one day international, and then four T20s. Uh, and well, I don't think we probably would have covered these on the final word necessarily, but we've been taught a lesson: uh, if two teams are wearing identical uniforms, you should watch them Absolutely. every time they play. Uh, and also that, I mean, the the way that Fakazaman innings was, uh, yeah, <laughs> a wonder to behold in in the, he's so agricultural over the leg side and he can be so good through the offside. He plays these lovely little late cuts and cover drives and then just steps down the wicket and whocks over the leg side. No concern <laughs> about where it's going to go. Would I be right in thinking that Rohit Sharma's the only player with multiple one-day double centuries? Um, Chris Gale only got one. And yes. Guttel got one. Yes. Saywag only got one, didn't he? In a very inelegant way, as you'll see on the YouTube um, feed if you're watching it, I'm holding the microphone between my legs as I bring up a tab. Yeah. There was a, a, an interesting chart that Crick Info put together on not so much double hundreds, mm-hmm. but what they calculated where there was the highest difference between the two top scores in a men's ODI innings. Mm-hmm. So Rohit Sharma, when he made his 264, the second highest was Virat Kohli, who made 66, and the difference was 198. Well, Fakir Zaman's gap was 162, fourth on that list. He's 193 compared to Barbara mm-hmm. Azam, who only made 31. So, yeah, quite a glaring uh, gap between uh, what Pakistan were able to put together. But yeah. I suppose but reinforcing a, what a brilliant innings it was. He's already got a double, was the point I was making, that two, he does, 210 yeah. he made against Zimbabwe, I think it was. Um, yep. So, you know, so close to being the second player to make two doubles in 50-over cricket. Um, and a shame he didn't get there, um, even if they weren't going to get 31 from the last over. Uh, last little look at the the West Indies-Sri Lanka series. We looked at the first test um, in, in detail. The second test was another draw, which we won't go into chapter and verse. But we did miss the lead last week, which is that Jason Holder's not captaining that team anymore. So because he chose not to go on the Bangladesh tour, Craig Brathwaite did, West Indies did surprisingly well on that tour, uh, won both those matches. And so you'll go riding on the horses uh, has hung on to the captaincy, uh, which is interesting because Jason Holder's done such a good job with that team, rebuilding that team after taking it over at a very young age himself uh, and now can concentrate on his comical sledging, I guess. <laughs> yeah, Dan and Jay. Uh, that was quite funny. Uh, Mr. Sheffield when he was sledging Dan and Jay the silver uh, last week. Yeah, look, surprising. Led the team for 37 test matches, won 11 of them, which is a pretty good effort considering where that team was in 2015. Dinesh Ramden, who was the previous captain, I was doing that tour. I was over there. It was the first one I went on, actually. And Ramden's team were a rabble. And the only shining light was Jason Holder, really. And to think about all the tours he's had to take them on when they were understaffed and just getting them to this point where they're quite competitive. They're better than competitive. I mean, they've had an excellent start to 2021. They won an excellent test in Southampton last year. So, and Holder himself, he's had a brilliant few years. He's the, statistically anyway, the the, the leading all-rounder in test cricket, I'm pretty sure at the moment, or near enough to it. So, yeah, the fact that they put out 
such a strongly worded statement about the uh, the leadership of Craig Brathwaite. It was an endorsement of Brathwaite, but I suppose by omission, maybe you can read into it that they weren't thoroughly satisfied with something that was going on with Holder. But still a senior player in the team, Brathwaite and Holder were in the runs in that final test in the West Indies first innings. We, say, we said that uh, Brathwaite was 99 overnight on the first day when we recorded this time last week. He went on to reach his test century there, made 85 in the second innings, so he started well. And Jason Holder made an unbeaten 71 when they batted the second time around. But yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's like maybe more to that story. Um, we'll ask around and see where we can get to on it. In the end, Sri Lanka was set 377 to win, and they batted out an entire day in much the same way that the West Indies did uh, during the first Test match. The captain, Karuna Ratna, made 75 top scoring for them, and they uh, finished the series and finished the tour with two draws. But, yeah, not for nothing. It might have been two squared rubbers, but plenty to take from it, not least the fact that Craig Brathwaite has hit the ground running as the new test captain. And perhaps a, a fresh opportunity for my campaign to get the six, six foot eight Jason Holder to be nicknamed Stubby. I've always thought Stubby Holder <laughs> would be a very, very good um, moniker for Jason. If he's looking for something to do now that he's not captain anymore, could take that one on. Let's play a little game, uh, a quick little game Let's that we it. like to play on the final word. It's called Nerd Pledge! Nerd Pledge. The game we play with the people on our patron page, uh, it's a, a quiz-based game. They send us a number, uh, and they send us a number via supporting the show by sending us an amount of currency. And the number is, is not a normal currency number. It's a very specific number that relates to cricket in some way that this person knows and we do not know. We have to work out what it is. We're looking at some things we can do on that patron page um, that might be fun. And in a couple of weeks, we thought we might let people come and watch us record the show on the internet. Not a live show per se with the, with the guest and the performance, but the show as we do it now. But given we're doing it over the internet, we thought, well, people could, other people could link onto that call. Uh, there might be people who'd be interested in doing that. I know that's a bit badgerish to do that, but it would mean you would A, get to hear the podcast before it goes out after going through the editing process and all of that. And B, you would get to see all of the mistakes that we make yes. <laughs> before it gets edited. So you would get the live, you know, the, the kind of... Hendrix in concert version of Cricket Podcasts versus the studio album of Cricket Podcasts. It should work out pretty well with time zones, I reckon. So if it's 10am in London, it's 7pm on the east coast of Australia mm. after the clocks have changed both ways. So I think that might be a winner. You can watch us on YouTube, as people might be doing at the moment, but to do it live might be a bit of a thing. We, we of course, had the uh, lockdown COVID-19 style Zoom shows last year, which worked pretty well in this respect. And we'll also do a Q&A at the end, I reckon. So yeah. after we finished recording and sent the files off, off to DC for editing, we will stay on the line and we can have some sort of Q&A about what we're up to. And that might be interesting. So no better time to sign up on the Patreon page where it's still in pursuit of James Anderson. He's got 614 test wickets. We have about 600 patrons. It'd be lovely to overtake Jimmy before he starts bowling for England again, which will be sometime in June, I suppose, yeah. uh, when they play New Zealand in a couple of test matches. So this might be the incentive. Watching you and me through a screen in a different forum might be enough <laughs> uh, to get you over the line and, and participate in a, in a bit of a Q&A in a couple of weeks. Well, it also means if you sign up, you get to put in a nerd pledge if you want. Like $5.51 from Andrew Tuttle, a.k.a. Tuts Corp, who sends a note, a clue with this one, saying up from the Maxwellian $4.34. His previous uh, number was the 434 right. test runs of Glenn Maxwell. 
My hint, says Andrew, is that it is current until January 22nd, depending on the logistics of international scheduling and COVID-19. <laughs> Can provide Moira info if you need it. Hmm, well... January 22nd, that's when India were due to arrive in Australia to play a series uh, against the Australian women's team, which was called off. The decisive word in Andrew's sentence can provide Moira info if you need it. Well, Megan Moira Lanning is a middle name that I have never forgotten and will never forget. (laughs) And this number has actually changed just in the last couple of days. It's been sitting on the list waiting to come in. 5.51 5.51 and it's been correct up until Sunday because 55.1 is the rounded up one day international batting average of Meg Lanning. It's 55.08 uh, if you want to go to two decimals. On Sunday though she was out for five so it's crashed. It's crashed to 54.38 <laughs> across nearly 4,000 runs though uh, at a strike rate of 94, 14 tonnes and 1550s. Who has a near parity of tons to 50s in one day cricket. That is insane. Nobody does that. Like the occasional freak of a test player has more tons than than 50s or or close, but no one does it in one day. Yeah, the only player the only player I would think of maybe Hashim Amla. I'm going to I'm going to um, google it as I um as I say it, but he's the only player that jumps out at me that might have done something like that Yes, yeah. he if you recall, he went on an extraordinary run of hundreds when he went to he the did. top of the ranking. I still reckon he'd be. I'm about now just padding for time as I try no, and bring I, the numbers. I, but before he, before you cricket, tell me, it's close. Before you tell me, I, I would yeah, I would guess he'd be more like a sort of three to four ratio. You know, like a, a 7500s yeah. 150s kind of ratio. No, no, nicely done. He's made 2700s and 39 further scores yes. uh, between 50 and 100. So about three quarters, mm. as you say. Well done. That was the vibe. That was a three that, to four model. Yeah, vibe. but Lennox's yeah. numbers are. Absolutely ridiculous. So 83 matches, the most matches played by anyone with a higher average than her is is 23 matches. So Lindsay Reeler and Rachel Hayhoe Flint played 23 games and averaged higher in the 50s. But basically, make the qualification 250 runs and only those two have a higher average than Lanning and only four players have a higher strike rate. So she's got the double threat combination where she scores faster than just about anyone and more prolifically than just about anyone. And that's what she does. So that's the end of Nerd Pledge. If you'd like to play Nerd Pledge, uh, as we said, jump on patreon.com slash the final word. The best part is that you can help us keep making the show twice a week, doing this and doing the Storytime History show on the weekend and doing the video stuff and going on tour to other places and making movies and all the um, kinds of weird and interesting things we're doing on the Patreon page. Hop on, check it out, see what we're up to. We're off to an ad, and after that quick break, uh, we'll be back with Middlesex legend and Ireland, former Ireland international, Tiger Tim Murta. I'm Glenn Maxwell. Make sure you listen to my favourite podcast, The Final Word. When you think about Woodstock, you might think of a few different things. I mentioned Jimi Hendrix before. You might think of a a music festival in the 60s. Uh, You might think of a small cartoon bird in the Snoopy uh, comic strips. You might think of the can of premix bourbon and cola available <laughs> at many uh, Australian Four woodies for ten. <laughs> <laughs> tall cans. Very tall cans. Very appealing to a, a certain youthful age demographic jump on the woodies, as it were. Or you might think of a cricket kit manufacturer, a Woodstock cricket, a new, uh, a new joining a new fusion of interests, a new partnership that we're forging 
on the final word with Woodstock Cricket, and Adam Collins is very excited. I am. John A. Gordon from Woodstock Cricket. We've been working and collaborating with him over the last little while, and uh, we're going to be working with Woodstock well into the future. And this is very exciting for us on The Final Word. We've worked with different kit retailers in the past, and that's been fun, but I feel like this is going to be something that becomes a really big part of what we do because they make outstanding cricket bats. I mean, even just looking at last week, the, the good gear guide, uh, the cricketer make, they've gone one and two. They've quenelled the, the good gear guide with their cricket bats, the best and second best bat in the country according to that magazine survey so it gives you a feel of who they are in terms of the, the quality products and I'll, in a moment I'll, I'll come to the the offer that we're going to have uh, for final word listeners as to getting yourself one of these sweet sweet bits of kit but yeah I mean I really have enjoyed the conversation with John because you, you can tell that this is a company that's kind of got customers front and centre. I mean, the experience of how you pick your bat, they're opening a showroom where you go in and get like an hour consultation. Like they really put the, the consumer right in, in the middle of this conversation. They've got a, a bat maker, John Newsom, who's regarded as one of the best in the world, which is, I suppose, why it's been going so well. They're handmade bats from English Willow and everything you'd expect from a high quality bat maker. They have um, some household names as part of the team as well. They signed Stephen Finn uh, with a big, strong middle connection uh, we've got today on the show with Tim Murta. Woodstock are also involved uh, with Middlesex, are involved with the Lord's Taverners, uh, another group that, that we work with. And yeah, that, that stable of, of pros which has been growing but Steve Finn, Benny Howell, who's everybody's favourite uh, T20 uh, expert at the moment. Uh, Sheldon Cottrell, Jeff, who I know you love the work of in the 2019 World Cup. Salute. And yeah, this is exciting for us because we've got ourselves a, a company who we really believe in. They're doing great things and uh, this is going to be the start of the start of a, a special relationship. Yeah, they've won us over. They've been wooing us. Uh, they've been outside our window playing the flamenco guitar, sprinkling rose <laughs> petals outside our front doors. And, you know, eventually, eventually in the, in the, in the warm late hours of a sultry night, we've, um, we've succumbed to the charms of Woodstock cricket. So what they're doing and what they're enabling us to do is to help you get a massive discount on your kit and cricket kit is very expensive um, and especially really good cricket kit is costs money so if you can get 20% off that that's a pretty great deal and that is what you can get off all of their full priced products they've got some sort of kit bundle things um, that roll things in together which that won't apply to but a full price products you can get 20% off and it's very easy you go to their website woodstockcricket.co.uk and you put in a code which is tfw20 that's the initials of our podcast and the number of percent that you get off. Couldn't be simpler. <laughs> uh, very nice. And you should at least just go there and check out their stuff and start thinking about what you might like in future, even if you're not ready to hit the button now. Yeah, welcome to the team, Woodstock Cricket. It's going to be great working with you. I, I neglected to mention that Mark Adair is also one of their players who mm. Tim Murder talks about in the interview we're about to have. So a nice little segue. Woodstock Cricket. .co.uk Take a look Beautiful bats 20% discount With TFW20 Hi I'm Ebony Rainford Brent And you're listening To The Final Word With Adam Collins And Jeff Lemon it's Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. And with us today, we have Middlesex legend, Island International, Tim Murta on the cusp of a new season. Good morning, Tim. Good morning. How are we? We're very well. We're very well. We were thinking last week, Tim, who should we get to come on the show to talk about 
uh, county cricket, you know, the, the April, it's spring in the air, albeit it didn't feel like it this weekend watching you at the Oval, but uh, it, it's, uh, it's that time of year uh, where everything starts anew. You've done this so many times before. How does it feel at age 39 gearing up for another long campaign? It feels good. I don't know if it's because sort of last season was so shortened, obviously COVID-wise, and, you know, I only, play, only played four championship games last year, so I don't know if that's mm. kind of sort of affecting the way I'm feeling now but yeah I kind of feel feel good feel ready to go excited everything I think probably every cricketer feels in the whole country um you know as you say I'm 39 but I'm probably no different in terms of um how excited I am to get going excited just to get out the house get away from the wife and kids that's probably (laughs) the main thing no but yeah really kind of looking forward to to what should be hopefully a good sort of long and, and hard season I was thinking about your lockdown last year, which to my way of seeing it, maybe it wasn't this way, maybe I just got a snapshot of it, but you seem to spend a lot of time um, responding to Twitter trolls who are going after the alt-right Tim Murta, the Trump supporter in America. Of course, it was election season. You got quite involved with that and had a fair bit of fun with it, but it feels a long way from that playing around on Twitter to kind of taking the field at Lords this week. Yeah, I think that kind of kept me sane during that kind of lockdown. It was... um yeah, obviously sort of getting all these messages from these crazy Americans and <laughs> just basically geeing them up and winding them up. So, um, yeah, that was that was good fun for a while. But, yeah, it'll be good to get back to, to doing sort of what we do best, I guess. And are you able to maintain that enthusiasm even when it's about minus five degrees and you're being <laughs> sent out to play over the Easter weekend and freezing every extremity off? Uh, in a word, no. um, Look, cricket's a great game and we love playing it but you know when it's that cold there's not that much fun involved it's kind of pack (laughs) as many jumpers on bowl your overs that you need to and and get the hell out of there basically and and hope that it warms up at some point which uh, seems to have got even colder the last couple of days so we'll see what happens Thursday yeah, I was thinking about uh, the, the logic of sending you out to play in a friendly. I mean, you've played so much cricket, a frightening amount of cricket over the last 20 years as a professional, thereabouts yeah. now. Um, the idea of sending you out over the Easter weekend in a three-day when it's Arctic conditions. I mean, did you consider saying to the gaffer, I might sit this one out? <laughs> no, you can't do that. It's kind of, you can't really pick and choose no matter how old you are and how many games you played really. But, you know, luckily we had 13 players off uh, at the Oval. So there are a couple of times where I kind of, said I needed to go off for a pee and then sort of didn't didn't reappear for another hour and just sat down and, and chilled out for a bit, which is kind of, I guess, the old bloke's prerogative, really. Uh, but yeah, I need, to, I need to get my overs in. I need to kind of get my match fitness as much as possible before Thursday. So I think even given the choice, I'd, I'd always want to play, you know, at least a couple of games before the, before the real fun starts. Tim? Take us back to the beginning. Uh, where does cricket first get hold of you? Because you, you're still playing it now, but it, it must have got its hooks into you relatively young uh, for it to keep them in um, as you're heading towards 40. Yeah, um, basically, sort of, my dad was a very good club cricketer. My uncle played professional cricket for Hampshire, so he was on the books of Hampshire for a few years in the late late 70s. You know, played with the likes of Barry Richards and and Gordon Greenwich and sort of Mark Nicholas and some of these, you know, top quality uh, names in cricket. So cricket's always kind of been in the murder blood. I remember going to watch my dad from a young age. My brother played. My brother was on the staff at at Surrey as well. We were there for a couple of years together. 
So yeah, it, it's something that was kind of ingrained in us early on as as a kid, going to watch my dad play on a Saturday and Sunday, and you know messing around on the outfield with the other kids. I think like like a lot of cricketers started really. We had Mark Butcher on the show a couple of weeks ago, and we spent a lot of time talking about that that dressing room at Surrey through the the nineties and two thousands. And I suppose you are in there for for a decent slab of it, albeit not playing as much as you you may have liked after yeah. you know turning out in the England under nineteens and doing so well and kind of being on the cusp of taking off, but then being in and out of the, the first team. But generally speaking, it seems like a an incredible time to have been around the Oval in the early two thousands when they were winning everything. Yeah, funnily enough, um, we lived in the same houses. Mark and Gary Butcher, we, our family bought the house off them, which, you know, we didn't know at the time who they were or, or what was going on. So, yeah, funny story, like both those brothers, the, the Butcher brothers went on and played for Surrey. We moved into the same bedroom, um, lived there for 15 years, whatever it was, and myself and Chris both went on to play for Surrey. So there's, there's something about that bedroom in Hurley that um, produces Surrey cricketers, but... Uh, yeah, as you say, it was, you know, an amazing team to come into. I think my first, three of my first four years on the staff, we won the championship and obviously sort of nothing down to me. I was very young and in the second team at the time, but that's kind of how I thought cricket was. You kind of turn up each year, you win a trophy, you celebrate, and then you move on to the next year. That's that's <laughs> kind of what I was um, born into almost when it came to county cricket. So, yeah, it was it was definitely a lot of fun and, and, you know, a really good environment to grow up in. How hard was it then to make the decision to pull up, to go across the river and head to Middlesex, which which is not unprecedented. You know, a lot of players have done that before you. Mike Selvey's a notable example. But you know, to make that choice after not getting that much opportunity at Surrey and, and realising that you had to do something. Yeah, it was a massive decision. It was, I remember I was out in Sydney actually playing club cricket that winter and I had the contract sent to me from Middlesex out there and I kind of went to sign it every day for about a month and just was like, well, <laughs> what if Jimmy O is injured? What if so-and-so plays for England? You know, I'll play a lot more four-day cricket. Do I really want to leave the club that I love and, and, and grew up in? And um, I, I couldn't ever imagined playing for anyone else apart from Surrey and every day I went to sign it and kind of stopped myself and you know eventually I think sort of sense came through and I realized that it was too good an opportunity to turn down and you know I was likely to play a lot more four-day cricket which is was the main reason for the move so you know I, I kind of wish in a way that I'd I'd probably done it a couple of years earlier now, but when that was what, 2006 going into 2007. So, um, yeah, I've had 13, 14 great years at Middlesex so far and yeah, really made to kind of feel welcome ever since the first, first day that I walked through the door. And I suppose there are some nice similarities to solve there, aren't there, as far as getting these fantastic opportunities with Middlesex, but I suppose not quite getting what you would have liked necessarily out of the England setup, having played, I mentioned the 19s, and having a great start as far as getting recognised as a, I think what was it, the, the, the Youth Player of the Year in the County Championship as a 20-year-old or something like that. But yeah. th- as far as being able to take the step up, I know Self played some Test cricket for England, but generally speaking, did most of his work at Lords. Kind of comparable bowler in terms of, as he described himself, uphill into the wind, moving the ball around at a medium-fast pace rather than express pace. Yeah. And which I suppose 
suppose might have informed the fact that despite the fact that you get on a roll in um, 2007, 2008, when you take in excess of 100 wickets in a season across the formats, win the T20, but you're not really being talked about in England consideration. Uh, talk us through that period of, of your career when you're kind of cleaning up for your new club, but you're not really on the England radar. You know, you never know how close you are. I've kind of since heard a couple of conversations that I was involved in selection chats or was close to a tour maybe one year. But, you know, I think most guys have probably been in that kind of position at some point um, after a good couple of seasons. So, yeah, it wasn't, it was something obviously I, I dreamt of and wanted to do, obviously, but never felt like I was close, close. As you say, sort of, I had, that was probably my golden period in those couple of years. If I was going to get picked, it was going to be then. And I guess my kind of style of, of bowling wasn't necessarily um, what they were looking for at that time. It seemed to be a lot about pace, getting three or four kind of 90 mile an hour bowlers. That seemed to be the kind of the fad at the time. So, and then Jimmy Anderson sort of being, you know, similar-ish kind of bowler and, and being a mainstay of that England team for so long. Um, mm. Yeah, I was I was never really sort of seriously considered, I'd say. There's um, an interesting crossover with that T20 team that wins that title early. You, you've got a very young David Milan knocking around the place, Owen Morgan, uh, Dirk Nannis, a, a friend of the show. Uh, yeah. it, it's, it must have been an interesting um, 11 to be part of. It was. That, that kind of whole summer was great. It was one of those where we sort of signed Dirk. He was a bit sort of unknown. We kind of knew he was a bit of a tearaway fast bowler, but didn't know much about him. Murali Kartik as well was, you know, a massive part of us winning that trophy. And both him and Sean Udall kind of as our two spinners, um, you know, there weren't, I don't think there were many teams that played two spinners back in those days. Mm. And it was um, sort of those two were definitely kind of key to our, success that year and as you say sort of some some bright young batting talent obviously Morgie coming through and being sort of very unorthodox and people not seeing a lot of him so it kind of gelled and, and a mix of sort of good senior players Ed Joyce and R.A. Shah and the likes of that Tyron Henderson was you know a massive um, impact on that team for us so yeah it was one of those tournaments where you just kind of get on a bit of a roll and seemed to win games from nowhere and, and everyone kind of stuck their hand up at different times to, to get us through and it was yeah a lot of fun. So through that period you're taking consistent massive hauls of wickets at, at first class level you mentioned Ed Joyce uh, 2011 uh, your life changes as a consequence of a, of a conversation with him I mean you take 80 wickets and get Middlesex promoted at like 20 but uh, talk us through Ed Joyce who, who'd gone from being an Irish player to an English player Back to an Irish player, of course, he, he's he's from from there and, and took yeah. a, a brief stint with England and, and played one day international cricket there. But as far as how he kind of twigged to the fact that uh, it might be the case, this guy with the, the broad South London accent might be able to come and play for Ireland. Yeah, it was, you know, our family's very close. Sort of my wife and his wife have always been sort of good friends and spent a lot of time at their place and our place sort of when I was at Middlesex and he was there having dinner and nights out. So, yeah, it was... It was one dinner I remember in our kitchen. He kind of sort of asked me, obviously, Murta being an Irish name, what's kind of your heritage, your parents or your grandparents? And I kind of said, look, my granddad was born in Dublin and from sort of him backwards, they were all Irish. And then sort of they moved over here and had my dad. So he kind of said, well, you know, I think that would qualify you to play for Ireland. Would you be interested? And I would kind of had a few drinks and we were laughing about it. It was a bit of a jokey kind of thing. Um, 
I was around, I think I was about 30 at the time. So sort of any hope of getting an England call up had gone and sort of that was um, sort of long forgotten about. So I, I sort of said, yes, of course I would. You know, Islander up and coming team and, and get the chance to play in some sort of big world tournaments. You know, why wouldn't I? So I didn't really think anything of it. Two days later, then got a call from Mark Garraway, who was performance director of Cricket Ireland. And I thought it was one of the lads on a wind-up, to be honest, at first. <laughs> um, but yeah, I kind of set the motion of, of getting my passport. I had to find all my original granddad's birth certificates, which my uh, aunt had, who was living in France. So she had to kind of courier those over. And that was that, yeah, kind of... That was start. I think sort of start of 2012. I got my passport and and became an Irish citizen. Did it have any echoes of the fact that you'd gone from Surrey to Middlesex? You know, smaller move, but still a you know, significant change of allegiances to be able to mentally accept changing from you know the idea that you might play for England to playing for another country. Uh, I think it was a lot easier than the Surrey-Middlesex move, to be honest. As I said, you know, there was no chance of me playing for England at that time. And to me, it was, you know, I might get a bonus couple of years at the end of my career playing international cricket, um, which I never thought I would have. So, yeah, it was this kind of conversation with my wife. And I think we both were kind of like, look, we'd be mad to turn this down and didn't really sort of see how far it would get. But we kind of thought, yeah, why not? Let's, let's have a crack, a bit of a... New challenge. Angus Fraser was very good with me. I kind of mentioned it to him initially. And, you know, I know plenty of other directors of cricket who would sort of say no and be like, you know, got contract to Middlesex. You know, we want you to focus solely on that. But he's always been of the opinion that he wants guys to play as high a level cricket as they can. And, you know, almost encouraged me rather than sort of standing in my way, which I know, you know, some directors of cricket would have done. What an incredible dressing room to walk into with Ireland as well. I mean, they talk about the golden generation, which took them from the qualifying tournament in 2005 for the 07 World Cup, of course, yeah. the St. Patrick's Day victory uh, against Pakistan there. And we all know what happens uh, thereafter, beating England in 2011. So you, know, you get citizenship at, or by the start of 2012. Soon enough, you're, you're debuting in a one-day international against Australia in Belfast. I mean, it's a, it's a massive ride for you, having been playing championship cricket to playing international cricket, I suppose, uh, in the space of a winter against Australia, no less. And that, and that dressing room specifically with Ed Joyce and co, who'd, who'd taken them uh, really onto the world map from obscurity seven or eight mm. years before. Yeah, I mean, I was lucky in that I knew quite a few of them. Gary Wilson, I play with at Surrey. Um, I knew the O'Brien brothers from having played sort of county cricket. Ed Joyce, as you say, Paul Sterling was at Middlesex. So, yeah, there were a lot of kind of familiar faces in that dressing room, but it was still quite daunting, I think. I uh, I remember the first couple of times sort of meeting up with the lads. It was a bit, you know, I felt like a bit of an outsider sort of coming in. But again, similar with Middlesex, they made me feel very welcome. And, you know, they're an easy, easy bunch to get on with and, um, as you say, some really kind of talented cricketers over that period as well, not just, you know, sort of seen as, you know, hardworking, sort of close-knit unit. There are actually some really talented players in that team. So, yeah, it was it was great coming in and, and um, kind of settled in pretty quickly. Made my debut against Australia, which lasted 10 overs, and then it rained as it often does in uh, Belfast. But, <laughs> yeah, that was, you know, a really exciting day. 
and sort of one that I'll, I'll treasure. And then maybe bigger than the debut is the next year in, in 2013 when you play against England, take three for 33. What's it like, that sort of early period where you are coming up against those big teams and, um, and performing well? Yeah, I loved it. That game especially, I remember, um, you know, the sun being out in Dublin, which doesn't happen that often. But yeah, we'd pack 10,000 people, which was unheard of for a, for a cricket match in Ireland, into the ground at Malahide. And, um, you know, we had a real chance of winning that game. Myself and Trent got some wickets early and kind of had England under the pump, really. They were sort of three, four down pretty pretty quickly and then it had to be Owen Morgan that came to the rescue obviously and uh, him and him and Ravi both got hundreds and, and sort of put the game beyond us but I think that whole day was was you know such a great experience as I said that kind of roar I remember having got my third wicket sort of not hearing a roar like that even sort of at Lords in the in the T20 games that I played that kind of real sort of passion behind the team and obviously England the old enemy and it was you know everyone was desperate for us to to turn them over but yeah those those kind of days were exactly the reason why I wanted to play and and sort of experience sort of big moments like that on on the international stage. In addition to that, I suppose, allegiance to the team that you are now playing for and, and as Jeff talked about before, settling into a, a new dressing room, talk us through the the emotional allegiance to Ireland. You mentioned your grandfather and, and generations before it, but how you now how you now feel as far as your nationality, of course, having been English and living in England and, yeah. and all the rest, but having had that spurt being an Irish international, yeah. how Irish you feel these days, I suppose? Yeah, I mean... As I said, I was nervous initially, sort of being an outsider. How would they take an Englishman? And so be it. You know, there were a few guys, sort of Trent coming from Australia and a couple of other guys. Alex Kuzak was an Aussie and uh, was living over there. But they're such a warm and kind of friendly people that, you know, I felt I felt as proud pulling on that jersey as, you know, I hope everyone else did. You know, and it meant a lot to me. It kind of felt like one big sort of family outside of Middlesex that I had and it, it was you know I really loved going over to Ireland the people are great people are really hospitable as I'm sure you guys know I'm sure you've been there on stag do's or various other things but um, <laughs> yeah it's it's just that that kind of um, the people as I said made it and sort of made me feel very welcome and I'll always have a soft spot you know I've sort of been back a couple of times since uh, retiring and yeah, it's just it's just kind of feels like there's another kind of group of friends and family over there that I can I can go and see any time I want and um, you know certainly be supporting supporting the team from afar as well. The 2015 World Cup was it's a memorable one for Ireland. Remember them winning that uh, close game yeah. against the UAE. They knock off Zimbabwe, the West Indies, but nearly qualify for the quarters. Um, but you're watching from home. You you busted your foot. Um, that yeah. must have been devastating. It was, that's kind of, I've had a lot of highs in my career and that's the one big one that I kind of not regret because I couldn't do anything about it. But yeah, sort of bitterness at missing out on that. It was, yeah, stupid. We were playing sort of, we always play touch rugby in the morning as warm up and we were, I think it was probably a month before the tournament started or so. We had like a, a camp in Dubai to get ready for it and we were playing touch rugby and I kind of sidestep someone and as I kind of pushed off my right foot I kind of heard a crack and I thought it was I thought something my boot had broken or had sort of Oof. one of the studs had got caught or something like that and then I felt the pain I was like oh well, that's not great 
And I remember going for an x-ray straight away and the physio sort of being, you know, don't worry, it could just be a little um, ligament thing. That's, and I was like, no, I'm pretty sure I've, I've done something fairly serious. And I'd, yeah, snapped my fourth metatarsal, um, which was basically a stress fracture, apparently, that kind of eventually just went. And it was just that kind of motion of pushing off on the, on the foot. It could have gone at any time. But, yeah, to go a month before before the biggest kind of tournament of, of our lives was um, pretty gutting, having to sit sort of in a, in a boot at home watching the boys play in that tournament and have such a great time around it as well was, yeah, pretty heart-wrenching. And I suppose as galling as that was, you keep playing for Ireland, but you, you've got a day job, really, and, and that's to yeah. be uh, a, a Middlesex bowler leading the Middlesex attack, as you do now sort of well into your 30s, lead the club again in 2014, 2015. Yeah. You go past 500 first-class wickets, and then 2016 is an incredibly special season at Lords. a strange year in many respects. I remember a lot of draws early in the year, and then yeah. Middlesex keep ticking over, and you have essentially a final at Lords against Yorkshire over four days to complete the season just by virtue of the way the draw played out. And it was like a test match. I remember being there and it was a staggering sort of uh, event uh, across the board, really. Uh, What are your recollections of uh, winning the championship, uh, getting your hands on that trophy and being such a big part of that side? Yeah, I think, as you say, the season started, I mean, the two years beforehand, I think we'd finished second both times, maybe second and third. And it felt like a kind of, we were building nicely and we had a a good squad that was getting better and better over those years, 2014, 15. And then it just felt like it was our time. 2016 was like the culmination of, of all those factors, really. Um, as you say, we kind of started the season really relatively slowly. Um, it's funny because the pitches at Lords that year were quite different. They were quite slow and, and actually spun and Ollie Rain mm-hmm. took quite a few wickets. Uh, we chased down maybe near 400 or something sort of incredible in the last last innings and I was actually over in Ireland with the Irish lads kind of watching it on a on a stream somewhere and that was the moment I thought well hang on this could actually be our year we could sort of take that step up from finishing second to winning this whole thing it kind of felt like one of those victories that defined the season and you know sort of I remember John Simpson just whacking it everywhere towards the end and, and getting us over the line and I think yeah. after that there was a real kind of belief in the dressing room that yeah we could actually do this and, and sort of go all the way and, and, and lift the trophy. And that final week at Lords, I mean I say by that point you've, you've, you've played a lot of T20 cricket at HQ but yeah. you haven't played international cricket there that comes later I suppose but it's as close as you're going to get to a test match really and such an unusual way for it to uh, to, to be the end of the season. I know we had the Bob Willis Trophy at Lords last year, and that'll become yeah. a fixture into the future. But yeah, when looking back at uh, extraordinary finishes to, to county seasons, that that's going to be one that stands out. Yeah, I I wasn't even supposed to be there. It was the last game of the year, and Ireland had two games in South Africa, and I was uh, I was due to fly out before the last game of the season. Um, And I kind of, you know, there was no way I was going to miss that last game of the season for Middlesex. It was, there was a bit of a kind of tense standoff between myself and Cricket Island. And they were adamant that I had to be in South Africa sort of four days before an an ODI against South Africa. And I sort of, Middlesex were very good. They sort of, they offered to fly me business class straight after the game. I ended up getting in sort of 24 hours before before the one day international in in uh, where was it Joburg we were playing, so it took a lot for me to actually sort of be at that game and um, 
there were a few kind of interesting conversations shall we say on the phone but you know there was there was no way I, I wanted to miss that game and as much as Ireland mattered to me it, it felt like it had been a, a career's worth of of hard work to get to that point yeah so there was, there was no way I was going to miss the game but I'm glad I did I'm glad I kind of had those confrontations and and sort of made my feelings known and and to actually be there for that last game was was fantastic and great yeah it's interesting that contrast between the two. I, I guess when we're covering the game, we get very fetishistic almost about international cricket is is the thing that that everybody's most obsessed about. But most cricketers don't really get the chance to play international cricket. They don't have teams that will be able to, to play in the major tournaments and all of the rest mm. of it. How do you see it now, now that you've got a little bit of distance? You've had such a, a long county and first class career and you've played international as well what's your perspective on i guess the the relative values and and merits of of the two different forms yeah i mean uh, that sort of situation wasn't me picking middlesex over ireland you know my argument was that i was still going to be there in time to play the game in south africa and um whilst it might not have been ideal i only had sort of one day's preparation i was I've been playing cricket the whole summer. I was I didn't need any more sort of practice or, or training mm. before that game. So it was slightly it wasn't sort of me picking one over the other. It was just um situation where I kind of felt so strongly about wanting to be there for Middlesex. So yeah, I mean it is different and especially with the franchise leagues, I guess some guys have, have big decisions to make and you know, it might be as some of the England players find out that they may end up missing a test match, mightn't they, this summer, I think, if their teams in the IPL go all the way. So, yeah, there are kind of delicate balances to be found. And, yeah, it's important that it's not too skewed one way and um, that the players are allowed to play as much um, of these franchise leagues and, and other things as they can without it um, impacting too sort of greatly on their international careers. And then there's this late and beautiful twist, isn't there? So late 2017, uh, the ICC, from nowhere really, announced that Ireland will become a full member, which in turn means that Ireland can play test cricket. And you're still leading the Ireland attack in one-day cricket, so yeah. by extension, you get this opportunity to, to play uh, with the red ball, which includes bowling uh, the first ball in, in Irish test history there in Malahide in May 2018, which was such a special week for everyone who was there. But just talk us through uh, the emotions of uh, the, having the ball in your hand on that Saturday morning. Of course, the first day was washed out. Yeah. And knowing that full Malahide, not just, I suppose, the, the guys you were sharing the dressing room with, but all the people in the stands who who for so long advocated the merit and worthiness of Irish cricket and have been suppressed for so long, all able to share in this wonderful moment and occasion at Malahide. Yeah, it was it was as you say such a real special sense of occasion. We sort of had a cap presentation ceremony where, you know, obviously everyone was getting capped because it was everyone's <laughs> first cap, and um, there were a few tears, and it was sort of done right in front of our families in the hospitality section of the ground and um yeah it was i i never get nervous playing cricket i rarely get nervous but i remember kind of strapping my boots on uh sort of half an hour before before the first ball getting myself ready and suddenly this kind of wave of panic kind of struck over me i was like right, I'm going to be bowling the first ball here for Ireland in a test match. And it just hit me and I was like, 
oh my god what if i can't hit the cut strip what if i've forgotten how to bowl and i had a good sort of five ten minute panic while i was putting my boots on and trying to pretend to everyone else around me that oh yeah and you know it's just another day and it's just another another match so yeah i think i was more nervous bowling that ball than I have been in my career to be honest it was and it probably showed it came out as a kind of rank Yorker length ball that you know I've missed my length by about six foot but um, once I got that under my belt it I was kind of back to normal and, and business as usual but yeah I think it did really strike me just before going out that sort of just how momentous it was and to have all the former Irish players there that day as well kind of watching on and and supporting us was you know really good and sort of really great to see of course that first ball where the Pakistani openers literally collide in the middle of the pitch and Imam Al-Haq gets taken off for concussion but anyway that's a a whole different story you press fast forward a few days and after that sort of staggering Kevin O'Brien's hun in the second innings you're still in it yeah Pakistan are chasing 150 odd yeah and this is kind of the dream sequence for you isn't it I mean defending a low total all that experience to draw on playing at home first test match and, and you get on one of those rolls and you pick up three early wickets and it's it's all happening you're bowling the house down and for about half an hour it feels as though it's going to be not just the first test in Irish cricket history but perhaps one of the biggest upsets in the history of uh, of, of test cricket full stop that must have just been the most the most uh, extraordinary feeling in the middle of that spell knowing that uh, you were on the cusp of doing this yeah, it's kind of bringing back goosebumps thinking about it. It was, um, as you say, one of those kind of days where you realise it's not going to last long either way. So you're going to, you've got to throw everything you have into it. And I think I bowled quite a mammoth spell and was kind of like, yes. there's no way anyone else is bowling at the moment here. Purdy kind of kept asking me how I was feeling. I was like, yep, fine. One more, one more. <laughs> um, but as you say, again, I think they were 20 for four maybe. And you kind of, well, like you know, we've got a real sniff here, and uh, unfortunately, we dropped we dropped a catch, and which would have had them sort of four or five down. I can't remember exactly uh, for nothing, and it might have made a difference. It might have not. Who knows? But um, yeah, it was just one of those days where you kind of know it's not going to last long, and give it everything you got, and sort of the crowd willing us on, and it was yeah, re- really special, and just you know, a shame that we kind of ran out of steam a little bit, or you know, the experience of Pakistan got them through that situation but you know hopefully if that happens again for for the lads they'll know that they'll have been there and and kind of drawn that experience and hopefully go one better and actually win a test um at some point that which you know be magnificent and as far as runs go as well we'll have a good stat on the final words uh, you got 54 not out in the first innings 27 in the second the first number 11 bat in the history of test cricket to get more than 25 in both innings of a test match have you got that on a plaque somewhere in your house <laughs> yeah i think of all the sort of moments in my career that's the one that i've i've got the most enjoyment from mainly from winding other people up I'd, you know, even recently we had a net session at Middlesex and myself, Stephen Finn, and I kind of shouted out to one of the batters, I can't remember who it was. I was like, oh, there's only three blokes in this net in this net practice scenario who have got test 50s, you know, Stuart Law, the coach, Stephen Finn and myself, you know, what's going on? <laughs> Pick the game up, lads. Um, so, yeah, that was, you know, great fun. Not so much fun walking out at 50 for nine, I think we were in that game before lunch on day one but yeah to have got a test 50 is you know something that i'll i'll live off probably longer than the five for at lords to be honest <laughs> so there's the first the first test at malahide the second test against afghanistan when you have that experience with the bat 
And then there's the third and, and final test. At your home ground of Lords, England invite Ireland to play a four-day test match to prepare for the Ashes. And I think, Tim, I think I interviewed you, I don't know, maybe six weeks or eight weeks before that, and we kind of laughed about, what if it's a green top and you get a chance to pop England in on the first day and you get to bowl from the nursery end where you've taken the better part of 700 first-class wickets? What about that? You kind of laughed and said, well, you know, then I'd be in it. I'd be in the game. Yeah. and you're in the game. I mean, as we all know, you bowl England out for 85 before lunch. You have a five-wicket haul in the space of 78 minutes, taking five for 13 from nine overs. I mean, you're the oldest player to take a maiden five for at test level at age 38, a week, sh- a week shy, sorry, of age 38. I mean, all those wickets at Lords you've taken from the nursery end must have been such a sweet morning as you took one English player after another, after another, and skittled them for 85. Yeah, yeah, it was... One of those where I knew we were going to be bowling, as you say, the wicket was green and um, the groundsman being an Irish lad, you know, obviously had nothing, <laughs> had nothing to do with that and I wasn't in his ear for the for the two months before, as you said. I always sort of thought England would bat first, no matter what the wicket looked like, and I knew that we were going to bowl. So I'd got my head around sort of the fact that we would be bowling on that first morning, which, which I think helped. And as you say, conditions that... I know very well and the ground that I know very well and I didn't really have any excuse to bowl badly that first morning it was um, all set up for us and um, you know the guys down the other end did such a great job Boyd as well and and Mark Adair who was playing you know his first test match as well was was magnificent got Joe Root and Joe Denley out as well but another one of those situations where you just find yourself on a roll and didn't want the the captain to take the ball out of my hand and sort of get one and it's great you know I've got a test wicket at Lords against England what a great thing I want that again I want more and more and yeah I think it was just one of those sort of perfect storms where there was a bit in the wicket and I felt in good rhythm and and sort of England having come off the back of just winning the World Cup it was it was you know a really good time to play them I think they could have Minds were still a bit elsewhere with the ashes coming up as well. So, yeah, look, to take five wickets was magnificent to do it before lunch on day one and able to go off and have a big lunch and some ice cream afterwards was made it even sweeter. <laughs> Your mind must drift back there from time to time. When do you find yourself thinking about it? Usually when I'm at Lords and I'm sort of dragging someone into the away dressing room just to look at my name on the board there. Um <laughs> It's, it's a shame it's not in the home dressing room so the guys can see it all the time but sometimes we end up you know having a meeting maybe in the away dressing room and the guys walk through the door and i'm just like oh who's the last oh yeah yeah and they're just kind of they're sick of the sick of the sound of it now but yeah as you say every now and again it does sort of take you back and and you know my whole family were there that day sort of i think the murders kind of made up one of the one of the tears down at the bottom end of the ground. It was, um, you know, such a special feeling. And to hear the Irish fans, you know, singing throughout that day and be able to put on such a good show for them and give them that kind of glimmer of hope, I guess, for a while that, you know, we could win a test match against England at Lords was, um, you know, pretty special. There was a pilgrimage of sorts of Irish fans, wasn't there? It was a, an amazing sort of optic of seeing green uh, in yeah. all the, the public areas and, and the sound they were making. We mentioned Malahide, how everyone came together, but there was a sort of a similar experience there 
at Lords, and I remember seeing Warren Dutram up in the media centre. I, I think England might have been five or six down, and just watching his face as these uh, wickets continue to fall. I mean, yeah. have you had a chat? I mean, this is a question we've asked other people on the show in the past. Do you watch it back on YouTube? Do you go back and go, oh, I want to feel that moment um, and, and just jump on? Because obviously it's so easily accessible uh, these days to watch back these highlights. But have you sort of clicked on it fairly routinely to watch it again? Yeah, I think sort of every now and again on Twitter, or even sort of St. Patrick's Day recently, it seems to come up i think it was tweeted by lords or uh, it's just sort of that two minute kind of highlight reel and yeah I've, I've seen it quite a few times and and can't help but just you know press play on it sometimes when it does show up on social media and i've got the whole game kind of recorded at home which i haven't actually watched yet i kind of haven't sat down and watched the whole thing i kind of keep meaning to and then i don't i don't know i kind of it's almost that fear of if I do watch it, it won't feel as good as it did at the time and it won't quite be the same. Mm. But it's there sort of at some stage I'll, I'll sit down and watch sort of spend the whole six hours watching that whole first day especially. But um, yeah, you can't help but not see it every now and again. And yeah, it's always good for the kind of ego and, and self-confidence just to, uh, just to watch it every now and again. And then there's that bittersweet touch because later that year you've got to make the call um, about county and, and country, the full member status and the complications around who's eligible to play as local players and overseas players and, and all the rest of it. And you, you'd been able to juggle the two things for, for all those years, but you had to make a pragmatic choice and, and go with Middlesex. Yeah, I mean, it was difficult. I kind of going into that test match knowing that it would be my last game for Ireland and sort of hadn't told anyone or I think sort of everyone probably had a sense that that would be the case but yeah I mean I can't sort of to have that as my last game for Ireland to sign off with that was incredibly special and it's something I never thought you know would would come around when I first started playing for Ireland in in 2012 it seemed you know a long way off obviously you know the odd one day international against England was probably all, all we could have hoped for at that stage but yeah to finish my career in in that kind of manner was you know I couldn't have wished for it to to go any better and obviously sad that I had to stop playing because I it was something that I did really enjoy and going away and touring different parts of the world and, and playing in different tournaments and you know gave me a real kind of excitement and, and sort of buzz about white ball cricket especially which you know I was kind of going off a bit at Middlesex I wasn't necessarily playing much one day cricket so it kind of re-energized and revitalized my love of, of white ball cricket and yeah I can't be any more thankful for for the time that I did spend in an island shirt. And then Middlesex uh, give you a, a two-year contract extension which takes you up to this year so you'll, you'll be playing uh, in your 40s when you, uh, you, you reach that milestone in the middle of well in August of, of this season but I mean it's not as though you're slowing down I mean you picked up 25 wickets at 13 last year and mm-hmm. uh, you were still doing what you always do. Interesting now though that you're leading an attack with someone like Blake Cullen in your team who I suppose he's what 18 or 19 years old something like yeah. that and you'll be playing alongside with him uh, this year so it, it, yes you are the older statesman of the team but playing a different kind of role in I suppose these golden years of, of your Middlesex journey. Yeah it's kind of a bit scary when you think that he wasn't even born when I'd made my my first class debut which is, <laughs> does make you feel very old sometimes but yeah I still I still have that love for the game I still have the enthusiasm you know having these young guys around sort of keeps me on my toes and you know 
as you say, Bla someone like Blake and Ethan Bamber, who may well feature more this year than he did last year. You know, it's it's just sort of great to be able to play around these guys and pass on any knowledge that I can and, and help these guys kind of develop and come through. And, you know, we've got Toby coming back, who's, you know, had a nightmare a couple of years with injuries and he's such a big kind of player in our team. So, you know, it's really exciting to see him back and, and fit. So, yeah, it's just, as I say, I'm kind of, this is actually my fourth decade of being a professional cricketer, which makes me sound very old. But, yeah, I still have that same passion and hunger of, of ruining batsman's days. That's still there. And as long as it is, you know, I want to keep playing as long as Middlesex, you know, want me and as long as I'm good enough to get in the team and, and not feel like I'm letting people down, then, then I'll keep going. So what do you think? Does that mean that you might go the full Darren Stevens and try to contract up again? You've, you've got, what, 841 first-class wickets. You know, could could get to the 1,000. Uh, wouldn't wouldn't take that many <laughs> more seasons. Uh, yeah, I mean, everything would have to go right for me to be able to do that, and it's, you know, not something you look at. But, yeah, I'd like to think this won't be my last year. It's kind of we're in discussion of, sort of on a monthly basis with Middlesex how that's going to go and, you know, I need to keep proving that I'm I'm good enough to do the job that I have done the last few years. And as I say, I'm kind of excited and, and feel ready and feel fitter now than I did probably when I was 30, to be honest. I probably look after myself slightly better, which I think you need to do if you're still playing at this kind of age. So, yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful this isn't my last year, but, you know, I'm kind of the way I look at it, is it's all kind of bonus time at the moment and you know time that i never dreamed that i would have still playing cricket so i'm gonna enjoy every last minute of it and in the short term tim i know i've got to let you go and get to training so we might uh put a close to it there but a mighty journey in the professional game uh surrey middlesex and Ireland, of course thanks for being such a a great uh, contributor to the final word today and, and good luck for season 2021 no problem thanks guys thanks for having me Hi, I'm Matt Renshaw and you're listening to The Final Word Podcast. This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. Thank you very much to Tim Murta for taking some time out at the start of another county season in the sunshine, the glorious blue sky that was behind Tim Murta. It was, uh, it was a lovely sight to see and his smiling face in the sunshine. So uh, if you want to see that, you can see it on the video version of this show on YouTube um, or if you uh, have a con uh, are satisfied with having just heard it, then you can... You can imagine that. You can apply that filter retrospectively. But it was it was good to hear from Tim after the interesting time he's had. As we come to the end of the show, we like to look at a little bit of a Bannerman. Charles Bannerman, the first test match, the man who scored 67.35% of the runs in a completed test innings, a record that stands to this day. And so we look for others at other levels of cricket who might have found something that qualifies as a Bannerman and Adam gets all of that correspondence because he enjoys it very much. Yeah, and last week this expanded to Australian rules football, which we didn't expect, but I think it was uh, it was uh, who was who was going nuts and we got a message. Anyway, there's been a lot of bags kicked early this season. I think it was Tex Walker for Adelaide mm -hmm. was was on a roll and the observation was made that maybe there've been football bannermans and that prompted two bits of correspondence to land in our inbox within minutes of each other about the same game that was played 
in round four, 1987, at the MCG between St Kilda and Melbourne. And I thought, purely because of that, I have to mention it. So Glenn Finkeld and Richard Jones, both sent us almost the identical message. They were there. When St Kilda got pumped, uh, they lost by 47 points. But out of their 14 goals, eight, Tony Lockett kicked 12 goals, three, which was 81.52%. And for that, it's a bannerman. Plugger has a bannerman at 81.52%. So... Who's to argue with that? In Richard's case, he's actually a Hawthorne supporter. He's a mad hawk, and he's watched Jason Dunstall and, and Lance Franklin kick plenty of bags for the Hawks. But he was there at the G that day, watching St Kilda play Melbourne in 1987, and he's never forgotten um, when Plugger kicked 12-3 out of 14-8 in a losing team. He also um, made the point that two of the behinds were rushed, uh, so you could argue that Tony Lockett actually scored 83.3% of his team score, the, the, the points that were kicked by That's true. players on That's his true. team. Either way, a Bannerman. I suppose we can't, but we do... In the Bannerman, we can't extras. extras. If you take it, I mean, yeah. there, there would have been extras, so yeah. I think that... Yeah, but I see where he's going with it, yeah. and I like it. The leg buy of, of Australian rules football is is, is the rushed behind. Yes. Um, and Dane Hanstead points out, an innings that... Should never be talked about, honestly. It should should not get any more airtime. And I'm glad it's at the very end of, of a long show because um, Pranav Dunaway, the, the 1,000 that he made in schoolboy cricket, yeah, beating right. up some 10-year-olds when he made 1,009 off 323 balls, hitting 59 sixes on a ground that was um, very, very, very small against some bowlers who were very, very, very small, um, getting dropped about 40 times by kids who couldn't catch the cricket ball. Nonetheless, it was still just above the Bannerman threshold, 68.87%. Here's 1,009 out of the 1,465 for three that his team made. Um, so that cursed innings gets mentioned again. Dane Hanstead, you have a lot to answer for. End of the show, I reckon. Um, and about time to, this has been The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. We have story time coming up on the weekend. Uh, we'll have some IPL stuff starting from Friday. Keep an eye out on the feeds for those particular things. Uh, thank you to Seabus Super for supporting the show. Thank you to Woodstock Cricket as well for supporting the show for the first time. Lovely to have you on board. Thanks to everyone on Patreon who is so instrumental to us being able to keep doing what we're doing. The final word is on the Bad Producer Podcast Network with lots of other excellent shows. If you'd like to check them out, it is edited by David Collins on the audio version and Ashton Farrow on the video. And uh, that is about all I have to say. Adam, anything else? Nope, you've done it beautifully, Jeff. Thank you, as you say. Long show, but totally worth it. Thanks again to Tim Murder. Looking forward to doing it all again on the weekend on Storytime. Bye for now. See you later. I had to go about